Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Sermon series on the cross of Christ this summer. We all know that the cross is important and even central to Christianity, but some of us may ask and struggle to understand why the cross is so important to the faith. Well, I want to say that's okay if that's your struggle. God himself anticipates that struggle uh, and speaks to the struggle in his word. He wants us to grow in our understanding of the cross. A great question to take then to the word, to take then to the Bible, is this question. What exactly did the cross accomplish or achieve? What did the cross actually achieve? And this is a question that the late Anglican pastor scholar John Stott asks in his classic book, appropriately titled, The Cross of Christ. Uh, What does the cross achieve? And he answers this question with four words. Put on your seatbelt. They're big words. Propitiation, justification, redemption, and reconciliation. Which is a mouthful, but these are all words that the Bible itself uses to answer the question, what does the cross achieve? It's also a great outline, and it will give, it will sort of guide us in the coming weeks this summer. And this morning we're going to start with reconciliation. Last week we looked at Colossians 2. This morning we're going to rewind a bit, focus on Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. And in this passage, as I read it and you follow along, you will notice this word comes up and crops up quite a bit. And the question I want you to ask as we're hearing it, as we're reading it, is this. Why? Why does this come up in relationship to the cross? And what does it have to do with me and in my life and the issues I'm facing today? The burdens I'm carrying right now. So let's read, we'll pray, and ask God to be merciful to us with his word. For in him, all the fullness of God, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, Lord... Would the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer and Holy Spirit, do your work. Break down the strongholds in our heart. Open the eyes of our heart so that we would see Jesus and love him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you know that I love Liverpool. 
And when I say that, I'm not so much talking about the city of Liverpool. I've never been. I bet it's a lovely city. I'm talking about Liverpool Football Club. And over the years, um, there have been really good seasons if you are a Liverpool supporter. But this past season was different. It was glorious. The word is glorious. Uh, it was so glorious, I told my kids that we should start recording games just to keep them for posterity. <laughs> uh, for the sheer beauty of their play, the geometry of their passing, the skill, the passion, the goals. The goals are amazing. The assists, the team dynamics themselves. And it didn't hurt that they were winning a lot. They were winning a lot, a lot. Uh, this year they were chasing four titles. At one point they had two with two more to go. One was the Premier League trophy, which they ended up losing by the smallest of margins. And the other was the Champions League Cup. The last game of the soccer season in all leagues across Europe. So my family sat down to watch this glorious final after a glorious season. Uh, we watched the entire pregame show, which tells you something. Uh, it was perfect. And then things started to get really weird. I don't know if you're watching, but they announced a 15-minute delay to kick off. And then they announced a 30-minute delay to kick off. The TV presenters were starting to get unsettled. Pointing, pointing to the crowd, this giant crowd, that it was like half full at kickoff time. Very strange for the biggest sporting event in the world, where last year, six times the viewership than the Super Bowl. What is going on? Well, I, I took a peek at social media to see what was going on. I saw what was going on. Unsettling videos of crushing crowds outside the stadium. Officials with pepper spray. Panic on the streets. And many weeks later, even now, there are still investigations going on as to what happened and who's at fault. Many reports say it's a miracle that nobody was killed. So there was a tension watching this game. On the one hand, it was glorious. On the other hand, it was ruined. You know, you were watching this amazing display of athleticism. And in the back of your mind, you're like, are people getting killed outside of the stadium right now? What is going on? And so you had this immense sort of tension. Both glorious and ruinous, both were true at the same time. It was a very strange experience. Well, this tension, glorious and ruinous, is everywhere in life, isn't it? Any explanation of our world that does not contain both is inaccurate. If you ignore the glory of the world, you become cynical. If you ignore the brutality of the world, you become sentimental. Both extremes are super tempting these days. But they're both inaccurate. They do not name what it is to live in this world and to live with ourselves. The most accurate way instead to name the world we live in and the world inside of us is full of glory 
and yet out of socket. Broken, yet beautiful. Glorious, yet ruinous. So, Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, had a phrase, glorious ruins. Glorious ruins. A combination of thrilling beauty and disturbing brokenness. And he was applying that phrase actually to human beings. Gloriously made in the image of God, and yet mired in struggle. That's our personal world, and yet glorious ruins is a pretty accurate description of what we encounter in the larger world. Glorious, but broken. Which is why all of us are crying out for something different, for something to be made right. Maybe you know what it feels like to live daily with a broken relationship. It's like a rock in your shoe, like a really big, impossible to ignore rock in your shoe that you try to ignore, but you can't ignore it. And it feels like that no matter what you do, no matter where you walk, no matter how you sort of try to ignore it, you feel it. You feel the brokenness. You feel the broken relationship. And it makes you long for something, somehow, to restore. You want that friendship restored. And until it is, you feel just off. Everything is off. Everything is colored by that experience. Well, the Bible has a word for what we're longing for in that moment. And it's reconciliation. To understand reconciliation, you have to tell a story with three chapters. Chapter 1, friends. Chapter 2, estrangement. Chapter 3, friends again. That third chapter is reconciliation. In our passage, we see this word applied to two relationships. God's relationship to creation. So if you look down at the text, verse 19 says, applies reconciliation to all things. And then God's relationship to his people. So in verse 20, he says, in 21, he says, and you. And you, the recipients of this letter, and us sitting here this morning. So what we could do is we could talk about these two relationships this way, creational reconciliation and personal reconciliation. And so let's first look at the, at the creational reconciliation, what we're calling creational reconciliation. But before we do that, remember, reconciliation is a three-chapter story. And if we're going to be applying it to God's relationship to the world, this story's chapters are probably best described in the way that Neil Planninger does as shalom, vandalized shalom, and restored shalom. So God created the cosmos and everything was shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word that means peace, but more than just absence of conflict, as many point out, it also means the flourishing of every single relational vector possible. So our relationship to God, our relationship to others, our relationship to creation, our relationship to the environment, every single relational vector is flourishing. That is shalom. And that's chapter one, but chapter two is vandalism. We see this in Genesis 3, that sin intruded and made a mess of everything. So God's creation remains a theater of glory. It's His work. And yet, also, it has been vandalized. Like the Champions League final, it's glorious, but there's pepper spray outside the turnstiles. 
The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 19, that all of non-human creation, look outside for a sermon illustration, is waiting with eager longing. So that beautiful willow tree, as you pull into our worship space, that giant willow tree that you see, it is beautiful, but according to the Apostle, it is groaning in travail. Why is it groaning in travail? Because it's waiting, like all of non-human creation, it's waiting for things to be set right. Shalom has been vandalized. We were called to steward this world well, to love God, to love others well, to, to steward this creation well. And in our sin, we don't. And so everything is out of joint. And so how is this shalom restored? How do we get to chapter 3, reconciliation? Well, our passage this morning tells us through the cross of Jesus, verse 20. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Which tells us two things. Reconciliation is expansive. Through Christ, the Lord reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. That's what the apostle says. Which is about as expansive as you can get. The cross reconciles all of seen creation and all of unseen creation, according to this verse. So listen to how R.R. Melek puts it. The scope of reconciliation includes the material creation, the animal world, humanity, and spiritual beings. My professor, Dr. Mike Williams, summarizes the Bible, the whole Bible, in nine words. God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. This verse tells you just how big it is that Jesus fixes. Now, does this mean, and some of you may be thinking this right now, that everybody, including demons in the unseen world, are saved no matter what? Is this universalism? Well, I don't think so. The Bible is very clear that personal trust in the Lord Jesus is required to be reconciled to God. And the Bible is very clear that demons don't and won't repent. So how can we meaningfully say that the cross reconciles the entire seen and unseen world in light of this verse? Well, last week we learned how the cross reconciles the demonic, for instance. The demonic is not delighted by the cross, but what? Disarmed by it. Shalom is achieved not because everybody embraces it. Or the king embraces it. But because everything is at least pacified by the cross, by King Jesus. Every knee will bow. And as has been said, not every bent knee is a willing bent knee. Reconciliation is expansive. It's also, we see from this verse, expensive. Verse 20 says, this reconciliation, this peace, this restored shalom came by one and one only thing, the blood of the cross. Only the blood of the cross can reconcile the groaning world to himself. Because of two things, only the blood of the cross restores us, humanity, to our original vocation as loving stewards of this world that God made. 
So our original vocation was to love God, to love others, to cultivate the Garden of Eden in a way that brought glory to God and to expand the borders of Eden across the globe. And so the glory of God would be reflected and refracted in the same way that waters cover the ocean. But in our sin, we've made a mess of things. We turn our love of God and love of others into a love of self, and it messes everything up. And so the blood of Christ covers us and restores us to this original vocation. Creation is longing for that. It's longing for that. And number two, only the blood of Jesus defeats the false rule of Satan. The same cross we saw last week that restores us to loving stewardship and a loving relationship with God defeats Satan and his dehumanizing dominion, disarming. Which creation is also grooming for. This is how jealous God is to reconcile all of his creation to himself. He wants it all restored. It makes me think of an art restorationist. This is an amazing vocation, talking about vocations. These men and women take broken or damaged works of art and lovingly and patiently restore them. And intelligently restore them. Researching and understanding everything they possibly could about this piece to bring it into restoration. Just a few weeks ago, a famous work of art by the abstract Dutch-American painter uh, Willem de Kooning was discovered and restored. It had been stolen decades ago. Uh, The thief just straight up ripped it out of the frame in the museum. Which is bold. But decades later, it ended up being discovered hanging in the living room in Santa Fe. Now, some of us might sort of hear that and think, okay, it's lost. What are you going to do? And especially when we hear this. The only problem was that when when this thief tore off the piece of art... According to this restorationist, his name is Ulrich Berkmeyer, he says, quote, The thief who cuts the painting, who cut the painting, was forced to rip the canvas down and side to side to free it, creating a staggering amount of paint loss. And if you look at the painting, there's like ridges. And so all this paint is lost. The thing, the thing is not what it was at all. And we might be tempted to just say, you know what, forget it. <laughs> What's done is done. Just pitch it. But the restorationist says, don't be there. How could you? This is a glorious work of art. Let's spend thousands of hours painstakingly restoring every single lifted piece of paint. Well, that reflects the very heartbeat of our training of God. He's, he very much does not want to pitch his art that he made so lovingly. He's a, he's a jealous God, and he's jealous to reconcile to himself the artwork that he so dearly loves. And he will do all that it takes to make it happen. He will spare no expense. And this was the glad mission of Jesus. So what does this mean for you? Well, I'll just echo C.S. Lewis, and I'll say this. Don't be more spiritual than God. What do I mean? This passage requires us, I think, to expand our ideas about the cross of Christ beyond human soul and beyond spirituality. 
Okay? So his cross reconciles all of creation to himself, restored shalom. And this means we must elevate our view of three things. Number one, we need to elevate our view of creation here. Super spirituality is only concerned with the soul. But this reconciliation, this creation reconciliation, shows us how God feels about his masterpiece of creation. God loves it. He does not pitch it. We are not headed, according to scripture, to sort of a disembodied eternity, but we are headed into a new heavens and new earth. And that word new does not mean brand new. That word new means renewed. We confess every Sunday with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That means a resurrected body for eternity. This is his creation. He has a high, high view of his artwork. And so should we. So elevate that. We need to elevate our view of vocation. So super spirituality is only concerned with prayer and and souls. Very important things. But if reconciliation includes restoring humans to our vocation as gardeners in Eden, then we need to elevate our view of vocation. Whatever it is we're doing, paid or unpaid, is holy and profoundly sacred. So I just want you to take a moment right now and consider how your vocation, the things that you spend your time doing, your work, again, paid or unpaid, how can it be understood as gardening shalom, of refracting God's glory to Him, as loving others as ourselves? And then thirdly, we need to elevate our view of social action. Super spirituality is not concerned about social issues. If it doesn't reach the prayer closet, if it doesn't reach the pulpit or the church sanctuary, then it's none of my business. But if the gospel flows as far as the curse is found, then Christians must be concerned with everything that sin touches. Which includes social issues. Uh, we pray today's June 19th, named after the day, uh, Juneteenth is named after the day, June 19th of 1865, when Union General Gordon Granger read these words to Texas two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Quote, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. End quote. Two years after the executive made his proclamation. 24 months of life. Now, super spirituality has nothing to say about our country's institution of slavery and its generational impact. Why? Because we're only concerned with our soul. We're not concerned with human bodies and human dignity. But if reconciliation includes everything that has been touched by sin, then we must elevate our view of social concern and social action. Too often churches that have a high view of the blood of Jesus on the cross have a low view of human bodies and social action. But this verse tells us that they belong together. Don't divorce what God marries. That's creational reconciliation. 
But what about our, our lives, our, our private lives, our small lives, our personal lives? We'll call that personal reconciliation. So Paul goes vague in verse 19. We saw that. But then he gets personal. He says, and you. In other words, the cross and the reconciliation of the cross uh, also recognize, uh, reconciles God's people to himself. And this reconciliation story has three movements. We'll call it hostility, harmony, and hope. So first, hostility. Paul describes who we are apart from the work of the cross in verse 21. He says, we were alienated and hostile in thought and deed. We may be, so, so what that means is we may be moral, we may be kind, but we are not, if we're not in the fellowship of the triune God uh, through Jesus and through the work of the cross, then we are, according to this verse, alienated from God and our thoughts and deeds flow from this state. And so we may be profoundly moral, we may, may be profoundly kind, but according to this verse, if we are alienated from the fellowship of the Trinity, if we're alienated from the fellowship of God, then our thoughts and our deeds flow from this state. And because God is a God of love, He is opposed to all that vandalizes the creation He loves, which includes our sin. And this creates a breach. Our sin is a big problem before a holy God. Hostility. But God is jealous to reconcile. We've seen this already. So God the Son joyfully and willfully and willingly enters our hostile world of our own making. And according to verse 20, has reconciled us to himself in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to our triune God. So that we could have peace with God where there was hostility. Friendship even. So Paul says elsewhere, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On this cross, on this cross, Jesus became sin. He was not sinful. He took on our sin. That was exchange number one. Exchange number two, so that we might be righteous. That is exchange number two. And now we can have friendship with God. Where there was hostility and enmity, Jesus absorbs it on the cross. So that Paul can say, even when we were God's enemies, he made peace with us. He reconciled with us because his son died for us, Romans. Which brings us to hope. Because of the cross, we now have harmony with God, and now we have hope. Jesus reconciles us for a purpose, verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this final two verses, the flow of thought goes like this. Past hostility, present harmony, future hope. Paul says here that one day we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. When I hear that word present, I think of proud new parents presenting their baby to their friends and family. Or I think of a high school proudly presenting their final thesis project that they've been working so hard on. There's a promise here that God will proudly present you holy and blameless. And then in verse 23, he says, this will happen if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, the grammar here does not introduce doubt. It's not like Paul is saying, yeah, if you continue in the faith, you probably won't. 
That's why our translation says, if indeed. Okay? The, the, the actual Greek grammar here is it's an assumption. Like, yeah, and you will continue in the faith. In fact, the, the idea here is that all of these things are done, as we learned last week. If you even just look at Colossians 2, chapter 6, we can read it again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. That's, that's what we're talking about here. What does this walk look like? Well, verse 7 tells us, rooted, passive tense, built up in Him, passive tense, and established in the faith, passive tense. Theologians have a wonderful phrase to describe this in the Bible. They call it the divine passive. Because in it, God is doing the work. Now, we just read, though, what we do. Which is a glorious, I think, beautiful blending. The scriptures blend God's sovereignty, His work in our life, and human agency in a beautiful way. We work, but, as Paul says, with the powerful working of God in us. And so there is confidence that the hope that we have in that future day is going to keep us putting one small baby step in front of the other. That's what it means to be reconciled with God, to walk in confidence. We are friends with God. And so cherish that friendship. Grow in it the rest of your life. Paul gives us this beautiful picture of friendship with God. Now our task is to simply walk. My counselor, she likes to remind me that humans don't change when they're scared. Too many times we force change in our lives because we're scared of consequences. We're scared of repeating the past. We're scared of making mistakes. We're scared of disappointing others. We're scared of making God mad. Well, that may create temporary change, but it does not create lasting change. So what makes lasting change is a compelling picture of the future. So if I want to become a better father, I imagine myself sitting around a fire when I'm 60 years old laughing with my voice. That's a far better thing to move toward as opposed to working in fear and working scared. This vision is way more compelling than parenting out of fear of failure. Well, that's great advice and it's straight from the Apostle Paul. He tells us, we have a certain future God is going to present you fully us. You're reconciled. And then he says, just walk towards what's already yours. So here's the good news of the gospel. Reconciliation is a completed event. Paul presents the work of the Christ as finished. The work of the cross is finished. It's complete. Gospel means good news. It's a completed news event. It happened outside of you. Whether you reject it or accept it, it happened. If we reject it, it's to our eternal loss. If we accept it, it's to our eternal joy. The choice is yours. So receive what Jesus accomplished. Reconciliation. Receive it this morning. Rest in it this morning. So Lord, we come to you grateful for your reconciling work on the cross. Maybe some of us are here this morning and we have never, ever come to you and received your reconciliation. So right now we lay down our arms. 
We lay down our defenses. And we cling to the cross that reconciles. So that though we were formerly hostile, we are now friends with you. Some of us, Lord, made that decision many, many years ago. And yet we struggle to see ourselves and to frame ourselves and to live within the reality of friendship with you, God. With this verse and with your promises in this uh, scripture this morning by your spirit, enable us to enter into that more. We see that the cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, has reconciled. We need us for this. I praise in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.